Good to see each of you. Hope is not, I hope it's true. Hope, biblical hope, is confident expectation in what we can be certain is true. If you're our guest, we welcome you. It's great to have you with us this morning. A lot of our people are traveling, and some are sick, and a few need our special attention in prayer, and that would be Jane Unger. We want to continue to pray for her, and Judy Sportsman, and also Gail Davis. as uh, She declined a little bit over this past week and is now in a wheelchair. And then we also want to pray for George tomorrow as he heads into surgery. And I'll try to pray for those at the close of our service. Uh, I want to give a welcome to those who are streaming and, of course, those of you who are here with us. Open your scriptures to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to begin a new series this morning entitled Certain Truth in Uncertain Times. One of the most important questions you can ask about anything whether it's somebody talking behind your back and you find out about it, or about something you have chosen to believe, is this question. Is it true? Is, is what is being said or what you are believing true? And you can apply that to anything. You can apply that to mermaids or fairies and pixie dust, right? I do believe in fairies. I do believe in... Okay, it doesn't make them real, even if you keep repeating it or dragons, or Jesus. Is it true? And I happen to believe in two of the four I just mentioned. And I hope you don't need to guess which ones I believe in. There are no unbelievers in the world. Just people who believe in different things. Neo-atheism, new atheism, is a belief. Now, they don't believe in Jesus, but they believe in something and as we test their claims, is it true? Is what they have believed true, or is what the Bible presents to us truth? I love what Pilate asked Jesus, but I don't love the heart that it sprang from. He says in John 18:38, "What is truth?" I think Pilate was so involved in a corrupt, compromised system, political and religious that he didn't even know what truth was. Pilate had lost his way. Micah warned the leaders of Israel, people who knew better, in Micah 3, 1-2. By the way, a book that also includes one of the beautiful messianic prophecies about Christ's birthplace. Micah asks them, Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil? The leaders of Israel, like Pilate, had lost their way. And I wonder, as we enter into a new series, has the American church, for the most part, lost its way? Have we lost our way? This is the longest and most extensive of all the Gospels. This sermon series is entitled Certain Truth in Uncertain Times. I want you to look at Luke chapter 1 at the latter part of verse 3, and I want to see where we pull this sort of title from. Luke says that he desires to write an orderly account for you, and then he addresses a Gentile, seeming a Gentile leader, perhaps a Roman, most excellent Theophilus. 
that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. What is truth? Is it true? And I hope this series will help believers at different stages of where they may find themselves and doubters and those tempted to deconstruct their faith and weary sinners and strident unbelievers and the spiritually cold and lost and the weary. Because you're going to see in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus interact with almost every one of those people. And I hope it gives hope in a period of history when truth has fallen in the streets. That's what one of the prophets said. The truth has fallen in the marketplace. It has been thrown into the gutter. And that's why I ask the question, have, has the American church, like the Jewish leaders of Luke's day and of Jesus' day, merely become a whitewashed tomb? These are hard questions. Do we look beautiful from the outside with our steeples and our buildings and somewhat beautiful even during the motions of live music and public prayers and persuasive speaking and nice clothes and liturgy and candles, but inside there's no life? It's a great question to ask as we allow ourselves to be scrutinized, in a, in a sense, by the Gospel of Luke to reveal our motivations, revive our hearts, renew our minds, refresh our souls, and reset our hope. A confident expectation in certain truth. Here's the theme of Luke that we'll probably be repeating throughout the series. And it's a timely series as we lead, what the elders hope to lead towards is gospel culture, true gospel culture at Highlands. Here's the theme. The joyful news that God's anticipated Messiah King has come to seek and save sinners. A salvation available to all who respond in faith, whatever their past life social status, or ethnicity. And that's good, that hopefully will become clearer to you as we, we start to develop the unique structure and thematic emphases of Luke that the, those things are actually built into that theme. Uh, a lot of people may know this, a few of you may not, that Luke is actually part of a two-volume work. It used to be distributed, Luke, together with Acts, as the gospel and the history. And it was a two-volume set, both addressed to Theophilus, personally, both written by Luke and distributed together. It's a common misconception that Paul penned most of the New Testament. And when in fact Luke did, Luke and Acts comprise over 27% of the entire New Testament, making Luke, not Paul, the largest single contributor to the New Testament. Paul follows at 25.6% and John at 17.7%. What do we know about Luke? Because when you read a book, to know something about the author is important. Well, Luke was a physician. Colossians 4.4 says Luke, the beloved physician. Well, what does that mean? Hopefully what that means is he would by nature be careful and precise, a man of science 
and research. Do we understand that science is not a bad word? Here is Luke, a man of science and research. Luke was a historian. Go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 1. And I want you to see uh, a few terms. He says this. This is how he begins this volume of his account of the gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative, he could possibly be referring to Matthew and Mark, of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, the disciples, some of the apostles, and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also. Here, here's his scientific precision. Having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke, unlike Matthew, Mark, and John, was probably a Gentile. What that simply means is he's not Jewish. Luke is a Gentile name. It probably has a Greek-Roman background. The Latin Lucas, from the Greek name meaning from Lucania, referring to the region in southern Italy. Here you have, out of all four Gospels, one written by a Gentile to predominantly Gentile people. And so it's going to feel different than reading Matthew and Mark and John. He also upends the Jewish understanding of what it means to be part of God's people. The Jews had a very narrow and isolated view of what it meant to be a child or the people of God. Luke's going to flip that upside down or maybe right side up. And what you're going to find out is Luke talks about the kingdom of God. I was at a coffee recently when somebody used this term, that they try to be, and I think it captures Luke's writing, they try to be kingdom-minded, not castle-minded. Do you know churches can become castle-minded? We want to guard the doors. We want moats. We want archers in the towers. We want to pull up the drawbridge. When somebody starts to approach us, that's unclean. That's going to change the atmosphere of what we enjoy here. Hurry up, pull up the drawbridge, right? There's this like picture. And what Luke is going to present is a Messiah who branches outside of the Jewish religion expectations and isolations, and he is going to broaden it to all people. It is a servant-heartedness and a kingdom-mindedness. Luke was the traveling companion and co-worker of the Apostle Paul. And now something about the structure. I will include tomorrow in the week at a glance an outline. So for those of you who take notes, you do not have to capture all of this. There's a long introduction. We're going to begin that next week. Luke chapter 1 and 2. John the Baptist's birth. Mary's song. In chapters Jesus' birth. In chapters 3 and 9... You have Jesus' ministry in Galilee. After that, a huge midsection, Luke 9:51 to chapter 19:27, and it's all about his journey down to Jerusalem. And the whole gospel turns on this verse. I want you to see it. 
Turn to chapter 9 and look at verse 51. Here is what makes Luke's contribution unique. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Luke writes, When the days drew near for him, for Jesus, to be taken up, the idea there is crucified, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Luke then structures his account around the city of Jerusalem. And I want you to feel the difference. Mark takes one chapter to do that. Matthew takes two chapters to do that. Nearly half of the book of Luke, ten chapters, focuses on his journey to Jerusalem and what's about to happen. And the question is, why do Gentile readers need to know that? And what you're going to see as he travels from Galilee south to Jerusalem is he is interacting with all kinds of people. And we're going to see that in just a few minutes. Luke, and this is, here, here's the beautiful sort of construct of the two-volume work. Luke focuses on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, the center of the world, if, if you would. Acts chronicles the gospel away from Jerusalem to the world. Luke announces to Jerusalem that the kingdom of God has come, and Acts announces that the kingdom of hope has going out to the entire world. This leads to the story's climax, which is in Luke 19.28. I want you to go to that verse, please. In Luke 19.28, it says, And when he, when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Of course, that is the point where he goes up. And Luke takes six chapters to describe one week in Jesus' life. Like all the other Gospels, they take the majority of their space to communicate one week in Jesus' life, which reveals to us the heart of the Gospel. And the heart of the Gospel is the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Here's the theme again. The joyful news that God's anticipated Messiah King has come to seek and save sinners. A salvation available to all who respond in faith, whatever their past life, social status, or ethnicity. And so I want you to see that. Here's going to be the focus of the rest of our sermon. This expanded kingdom, and I want us to get familiar with that term, because as Jesus goes among his own people and his own don't receive him, that kingdom naturally then expands. This expanded kingdom of the Savior King is for all people. It has no ethnic or geographic boundaries and was the very reason Jesus came to the earth. Let's look at this. The expanded kingdom is for all people. Now many in Israel were waiting for what kind of a Messiah. Do you remember this? They had, they had the hope of a Messiah who would return Israel to its former glory, who would go down and push Rome outside of its borders. It was still all about the land, and the Roman occupation had to stop. So when Jesus came, that's what they expected him to do. 
The keepers of the Jewish gate, if you would, the ones who stood at its doors were the Pharisees. That's the kind of Messiah that they wanted. There were other teachers of the law as well. But Luke allows us, he sort of allows us to sort of parachute down in and see how quickly the religious leaders of the day, the keepers of the gate of Israel, were disappointed. Go back to Luke chapter 7 and look at verse 36. By the way, we're going to see in just a few minutes how, why Luke is called the gospel of womanhood. Luke mentions women more than any other gospel. In Luke chapter 7, verse 36, it says one of the Pharisees, it's one of the religious leaders, asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. That means she was notorious for it. She had an earned reputation for being a sinner. When she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. She brought some perfume. Standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. By the way, Simon... The Pharisee gets a name. He did not do the customary washing of Jesus' feet. Jesus will point that out later. But this sinful woman is in essence washing his feet. Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Let me ask you, would you be uncomfortable at that dinner right now? Simon sure was. Now when the Pharisee had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, that's been the question all along, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. This together with Zacchaeus, I believe, is a microcosm of Luke's gospel. You know what Luke wants you to know? Jesus didn't come for people that have no need for a physician. Jesus didn't come for people who thought they were already ceremonially and religiously clean. He came for the exact people we think are dirty, filthy scum. And it's shocking Matter of fact, Jesus tells Simon exactly who she is, revealing that he is a prophet, and more than a prophet. And look at verse 47, because we're going to consider this about two months down the road here. But look at what he says in verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, what does he add? What does he say next? Which are many. Aren't you glad that detail is in there? are forgiven, for she loved much. By the way, the love is not why she was forgiven. It was the result of her being forgiven. It was the proof, if you would. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Simon, the Pharisee, showed no love. See, Jesus' point in coming to the earth was not to enter into the Jewish religious network 
and be at all the nice dinners and wear all the fancy robes and be accepted by the religious elite and their seminaries and everything else. What you see in this account is a picture of what the expanding kingdom looked like, and that is this. Everyone is welcome. Even the very least and last to deserve favor from God. Here's a few of the people that that Luke emphasizes. The lowly, the hungry, the hated, shepherds, Gentiles, Samaritans, sinners, publicans, prodigals, the poor, the oppressed, and thieves. Luke 15 to 19 has been dubbed the gospel of the outcasts because it displays Jesus' love and acceptance of the marginalized of his day. What Luke is highlighting is not that only the poor and the oppressed get into heaven and the rich do not. What he really is highlighting, and we're going to see this as we start to preach through this expositionally, is there is an attitude that comes along with believing in a saving way in Jesus, and that attitude is they come with nothing and in full dependence crying out for mercy So who were some of these marginalized people that Christ ministered to? In Jesus' day, women. Plummer refers to Luke as the gospel of womanhood. The material in Luke's gospel and Acts demonstrates Luke's unique attention and insight regarding female perspectives, experiences, responses, characteristics, involvement, Jesus' honor of them, and them being role models. Luke refers to more women than any other gospel, and it reveals what Jesus considered important in his kingdom. Whereas the Jewish rabbis were very male-centered and very authoritarian, Luke is introducing to you an angle of Jesus that might be new and challenging to us as a church. Listen to, I'm just going to fly through these so you feel the weight of the volume of what Luke does. Because Luke records a number of significant passages with women who are at the center of the story or that are unique to Luke because an extended focus on women. Luke chapter 1, 5 to 25, that's next week's sermon, Elizabeth's Conception of John. Chapter 126 to 38, the angelic announcement to Mary of her conception of Messiah. Mary's visit with Elizabeth. Mary's magnificent and incredible outspoken hymn. Elizabeth's role in naming John. Mary's response to the shepherd's message. Simeon's words addressed to Mary. Anna, the prophetess. By the way, that was an office. That was a woman prophet. A reference to Elijah's being sent to a Gentile widow, the widow of Nain's son resurrected, Jesus being anointed by a sinful woman. We just saw that. A record of women who accompanied and ministered to Jesus, Jesus' visit with Mary and Martha, the record of women's words to Jesus as he taught, 
The crippled woman's Sabbath healing, parable of a lost coin, and the the woman pictures God's concern and joy. The parable of the persistent widow, a record of women following Jesus to Golgotha and his words to them. A reference to women who witnessed the crucifixion shared by all three synoptics that simply means to see the same, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the emphasis on the women's report of the empty tomb and the fact that women get the first two resurrection appearances of Jesus. And if that feels uncomfortable to you sitting here, I'm going to tell you 2,000 years ago, that was so against the culture of the day that Jesus was an absolute reformer. And yet 2,000 years later, we still need this reminder. Another group Luke focuses on are children. And while children are often adored and somewhat idolized in our modern world, it was not the way during Luke's and Jesus' day. Yet he was concerned about them. He says this in Luke 10.21, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. He also used them as an example of how to receive the kingdom, this expanding kingdom. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a, you know what he says, like a child, shall not enter it. Luke 18, 17. Jesus saw children as human beings who needed him just as adults did. Jesus gave special attention to the poor. We'll develop that more as we get to those texts. He focused on healing the sick. Not only does he heal crippled people, and a man with the dropsy, which is your body is swollen because it's got too much water, while at the same time you're thirsty. He heals him on the Sabbath, but he actually reaches out and touches leprous people. And the, lepr- the leprosy there indicating sin, that God does not shirk away from you. He doesn't run from you. He reaches out and will embrace you, even as a sinner. One Sabbath, Luke 14 records, when he went to dine at the house of another ruler, the Pharisee, they were watching him carefully. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Here's this swollen man. On the, by design, by divine design, on the exact day when the Pharisees were going to critically judge and condemn him. Then he t- I love this. They remained silent, but Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. He focuses on outcasts who are disreputable and the sinners. Shepherds who are considered shifty and untrustworthy, even thieving migrant workers, get the announcement of the birth of Christ. Let me, let me just pause here. Does Highlands live out this kind of gospel? 
Will we be okay with a believing Palestinian and Jew sitting next to each other on the same side of the church? Are Syrians welcomed in here to hear the good news? Or Ethiopians? Or Iranians? What if all of a sudden 50 people from other countries, from Aurora, pulled up and entered in here? Would they be received with the love of Jesus and what we see in the Gospels? Not only is Christ's kingdom expanding to all classes of people, it is expanding across ethnicities and nationalities. The expanded kingdom has no ethnic boundaries. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 10. Right at the beginning, this jumps off at the page, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. And we have so many Christmas songs about this, right? Of great joy that will be, listen to this, for all people. Not all kinds like land surveyors and lawyers. All nationalities. Look at Luke 2.32, because he says, Christ is described here as a light for revelation to the Gentiles. I am so glad it says that, because I'm a Gentile. With a very heavy German background. As Luke drops into Jesus' ministry in Luke 4, he focuses on Jesus' statement that in Israel's history... It was sometimes the Gentiles who found special favor. Can you imagine how that struck them? Look at Luke chapter 4, verse 24. I'm just giving you a sampling throughout this gospel so that we can, here at the front end of a new series, feel how Luke, as he presents Jesus, is going to challenge us. Jesus said, truly I say to you, no prophet, he's saying this in Nazareth, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel. There were many Jewish widows in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land, verse 26. And Elijah was sent to none of those Jewish widows, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And the Jews would have heard this. Elijah didn't go to the Jewish widows. He went to a Gentile widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah. There were Jewish lepers. And none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. They were probably okay with that message, right? Look at verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with murderous rage, with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. I stood there when we visited Israel. I stood in Nazareth on what is probably that brow of the cliff. The Jews wanted preference. They wanted ethnic boundaries. They wanted a castle. 
Jesus says this in Luke 13:29 after he says that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob would be rejected because they do not know the Father. He says this, but people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God and behold some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. And certain Jews hated the breadth of the gospel just like certain Americans hate the breadth of the gospel. And what I think each of us desires for Highlands is a culture that resembles the gospel of Jesus Christ put forward by Luke because in the end there is no ethnic or political boundaries. In the end there is only this distinction, children of the light and children of darkness. And we want the children of darkness to be introduced to the King, Savior, Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus came. And in conclusion, uh, look at Luke 19, verse 10. This is the exact reason Jesus came to the earth. The Son of Man, Luke 19, 10 says, came to seek and to save the lost. Who were the lost? Israel and her religious leaders who rejected Jesus. The lost included those who were without a shepherd. The lost included those who were sick. He says in Luke 5, 31 to 32, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He told this parable that there were two men that went into the temple and the one went up and he's sort of pounding his chest saying, I fast and I give and I pray. And I'm not like other men. Jesus says, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In Jesus' words of Luke 13:3, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Yes, those are heavy questions. Questions that Luke presents to us as he chronicles this life of Jesus with an emphasis on his route from Galilee to Jerusalem and all the different unclean, outcast, marginalized people he starts collecting on his way to Jerusalem because he came to seek and to save the lost to the point that he would even touch a leper and forgive him. The joyful news that God's anticipated Messiah King has come to seek and save sinners. That's you. And that's me. A salvation that is available to all who respond in faith, whatever their past life, social status, or ethnicity. Let's pray.